Welcome to Black Diplomats, the dopest podcast on foreign policy in America. We decenter whiteness and interrogate imperialism, colonialism, and white supremacy. And our three guests this week are going to help us take on all three of these evils. They are Nina Jankowitz, a disinformation fellow at the Wilson Center, Shereen Mitchell, the founder of Stop Online Violence Against Women, and Maria Romanenko, who is the special correspondent at Kromansky International. How y'all doing? Great. How are you, Terrell? Great. <laughs> I am in Terrytown right now. Technically, I'm on vacation, and I had to get away from the COVID-19 epicenter because I was getting ready to lose my mind <laughs> in, my, um, in, in my little studio. So there's nature here. And, you know, I actually plan on going to Miami, like, much before all of this stuff went down. And... I wanted to go to Miami and be on the beach, but you know, I mean, it's, it's like in, in addition to this being a pandemic, some states care more about the fact that um, uh, that we're in a pandemic than others. Yeah. <laughs> and I did not want to be on a beach with anybody who wasn't following the social distancing rules. And so I said, nah, I'm good. I'll just go upstate where and stay in New York state where people uh, believe in science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't blame you. So, yeah, so so Maria, tell me, how how is it over there in Ukraine with uh, COVID nineteen, and how do you how, how what's going on with you, and do you feel like the government? How do you feel like they're handling? It? Let me just ask you that. Uh, well, I would say that uh, we are handling it very well, mainly because uh, we introduced the, uh, all the restrictions very early. Um, so I feel like maybe that contributed to the fact we don't have as many cases. I think we are like, um, we have just around 22,000 now. And But also I think the other reason we have uh, fewer cases in other countries is that not many people get tested. So I think, mm. for example, like the UK had 4 million tests where, and they have twice the population of Ukraine, but we had only like 300,000. So we had like whatever, like, you know, we had a lot, a lot fewer tests, um, but we only half the size of the population of the UK. Um, so that's why um, we have that number. But otherwise I feel like people are very relaxed. I see the news from like the UK, from the US, uh, and I feel like it's very different atmosphere here. Maybe it's because the peak has already passed. So at the beginning of May, we had like uh, the, mo the you know the biggest rise, and then now it's kind of sort of like going down. We have about three hundred, four hundred cases uh, every day. So yeah, but overall, like a lot of a lot of restrictions have been lifted now. So now we have the underground system working, and uh, a lot of people like I've been to the office today and yesterday. Um, the public transport is working. The outside Side terraces of the restaurants are open now and things are slowly like getting back to life so yeah so what you're saying is that you don't have a complete idiot uh running your country like we do um i mean i'm a journalist i'm supposed to stay like objective um i um I'm not going to put you in that spot I, i'm i'm gonna I'm leave you alone so um <laughs> but <laughs> I want you all to share your, your biographies one by one as we start this conversation. So, Shireen, let me st let's start off with you because one of the reasons why I brought you on the show is because I think when 2016 happened, everybody was talking about 
the Kremlin, the Kremlin, the Kremlin, or more specifically Russia, Russia, Russia. And I felt like there's a conversation to be had about the fact that the Kremlin did orchestrate these disinformation campaigns. We can acknowledge that. But one of the things that you focus on is the failures internally in America that makes us susceptible to disinformation abroad and disinformation that's homegrown. And there's a a colonial and a white supremacy element to it that a lot of mainstream media don't talk about, but you take head on. So just talk about your work and the focus that you put on racism and white supremacy as one of the main factors that we have to deal with and to get rid of, um, you know, that we really have to take on if we really want to have a serious conversation about disinformation. Yeah. So um, thank you for having me again. Um, And just for a little bit of a background uh, perspective is that we started um, tracking um, black women and women of color in terms of how the platforms were managing um, their online harassments and how uh, they were being targeted with online violence. And that allowed us to see the fake accounts and all the other things that eventually becomes 2016's uh, dis, you know, in, uh, interference in the election. Um, and the key part to the, the reason that we looked at this work was, um, as, as many have looked at this, uh, Nina included, as, as well as um, other entities and organizations, we put out the first report that basically said that Black identity was used as a voter suppression tool during 2016. And that has a historical reference in America because we have a historical framework of trying to keep uh, do, with voter suppression, which is why the VRA exists, the Voting, Voting Rights Act, which had been gutted before this, um, uh, because the the way in which this country has controlled power is to prevent certain people from being being able to vote and to dictate how this country, what directions this country should go in. So, um, so in, um, in so during 2016. We took that those same 3,500 ads, which is only a portion of the ads that was on Facebook, that was revealed to Congress. And we did a data dump with the with the with with those ads. And when we when we saw when we did the data dump, we saw a web. And now the work that we're doing, we're, we're watching other versions of this, and other people are starting to look at it from different tilts uh, with the data sets. But um, when we did it, we saw this huge web of black identity that they were overwhelmingly targeting. And everybody was talking at that time, race was an issue, but they didn't want to specifically say black or African-American. They were saying, well, race was an issue and that's a divisive issue in this country. And so they wanted to have a general conversation about that. What our data showed was that once we did the data dump, you could see how large and how intensified those ads were on black, anything that was black. And that included like, Pan-Africanism, that included police brutality, that included uh, like everything that was happening at that particular time, Black Lives Matter. Um, and, and they also, um, again, pretended to be Black people, pretended to be Black activists, uh, had groups and fake accounts, um, what they call inauthentic accounts, that were pretending to be us to sow the same discord, but also share these, 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 these narratives that eventually when, when they got closer and closer to the election, they then started pushing in um, what, we, what we have now coined in our second report, digital voter suppression. And, and that's what the impact came from. But, but again, they weren't the only ones. And that's the part that I think, um, I know I, I, once Nina starts talking, is, is that even though Russia is still even interfering right now, and we know they're still active, I've, I've found, we've still found and discovered 
some of their activity. That does not change the fact that the domestic side, in my opinion, in this second phase is larger than the foreign interference. We are now, we don't like it. What's what, in my opinion, is happening. A lot of the disinformation is, is homegrown now with false amplification from foreign interference versus the other way around it before 2016, where we had a lot more foreign interference and we were just sharing that, that those, uh, those disinformation points um, as Americans not realizing we were doing it. Now we're the ones creating it, sharing it, and they're just sort of amplifying it, sticking their toe in there in the moment trying to call, you know, cause more um, division, finding out ways to get it amplified and figure out who will do the largest amplification. Um, but what, what we've discovered now is that not only was that happening and no one wanted to talk about it because the targets at that time was black people, black women specifically, because they get out the vote, um, that we are now in this other phase where, where, where actual political campaigns on, on the right and the left have participated in what I call um, um, uh, disinformation and politics with the disinfo and politics frameworks. And so they're, they're using their campaigns to do the same thing where they're actually using the political spectrum to share disinformation. And we're watching that now um, as, as you saw, I think Twitter just recently tried to stop, you know, Agent Orange from sharing the vote by mail disinformation. Um, that's the first time that anyone's taken any action. And that's where the problem is. We're, we're just, what, less than 180 days away from, the, from November, and, and this is the first action that has been taken when, this, when that type of behavior has been going on, coming from several different campaigns, several different politicians, and, 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 and nothing has been done about it. And so that's what, that's what we're up against in America, because that seeds uh, into what is, what is ultimately uh, impact on, on, on voter turnout, uh, vote suppression, what we call digital vote suppression, and all the actions that these states and, and local governments are taking. Uh, what happened in Wisconsin, they were using COVID as, as a weaponization to suppress the vote. That's why they were trying to force people to come out um, right. so, and sometimes telling people everything was fine when it wasn't. But the goal was to force people out to, to maybe win their one candidacy because they assumed that, that, um, that certain groups of people were, were going to feel too unsafe to come vote. Yeah. And so that kind of disinformation is the kind of weaponization um, that we're, we're faced with, with now because COVID is now a part of the disinformation. COVID is being, uh, the disinformation like COVID is one thing, but they're using COVID and the COVID disinformation uh, against the elections. As against the elections. Out. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that later on in the show. But Nina, um, you deal with both. Like, so, so you're focusing in Ukraine, but you're based here in, Amer- you know, in, in America, D.C., as a matter of fact. But the both of us, we go to Ukraine regularly. We, we always tend to miss each other. Um, <laughs> it's true. We are there so much. But uh, tell us about uh, the work that you do at the Wilson Center and kind of piggybacking off of Shireen because you're a, a disinformation fellow. You yeah. know, at, you know, it makes it sound as if you're the person that's creating the disinformation. You know, I know. Title, <laughs> I think it's a funny title. Uh, I wish it were counter disinformation fellow, but, right. but I study disinformation, <laughs> right? So I got into this um, a couple of years ago before I even moved to and lived in Ukraine. I, I was working for an organization called the National Democratic Institute, which supports uh, activists of all stripes all around the world. And I focused on Russia and Belarus. Those were my two countries. Supporting have you been kicked them, out of Belarus them. yet? <laughs> I have unfortunately not been to Belarus because NDI, before I even joined, uh, got asked to leave Belarus. So both of my programs okay. in, in Russia and Belarus actually operated 
outside of those countries, but we okay. still worked with activists from. We, everybody, from I say that because everybody tends to get kicked out of Belarus at one point or the other. So. <laughs> Go ahead. It's true. Uh, it's true. I'd love to go someday. But uh, but so that's where I first really got exposed to the phenomenon that we're now calling disinformation and fake news. Obviously, disinformation predates my involvement in it. It goes way back throughout, you know, Soviet history to, to the beginning of time, even. Um, but the Russian government in particular was using propaganda and disinformation against uh, against my organization and the people that we were working with. Um, we, the Russian government actually asked us to leave right before I joined NDI, when they asked the U.S. Agency for International Development to leave Russia. We had USAID funding, and so we left on our own accord. Um, but after that, they started putting out all sorts of crazy things about how the money got there and what was, you know, coming from who, what our goal was. We were trying to create color revolutions and overthrow the Russian government, which couldn't be further from the truth. There were also narratives that we were CIA, which, like, honestly, if I were CIA, I'd be making a lot more money than I was making the <laughs> yeah, right? So, so that's where I first got exposed to it. Um, and then as the Ukraine conflict exploded, you know, for, for your listeners that might not know, although I'm sure they do because you're the host. Russia invaded Ukraine, Russia annexed uh, the Crimean Peninsula, um, and then we saw this explosion of disinformation and, uh, and propaganda in Ukraine, and we saw Ukrainians fighting back against it. So this Fulbright Fellowship came up where I could go and offer to advise the Ukrainian government on something, um, and I was already working on issues of, of strategic communication, so I went and worked with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the spokesperson of the ministry, and for a year we talked about strategic communication and how to combat disinformation, and that led to the work that I'm doing now um, on disinformation. So that was already three, more than three years ago that I moved to Ukraine. I, I spent a year there and then spent the rest of the time working on a book that's coming out on July 9th uh, mm -hmm. called How to Lose the Information War. And basically, when I was in Ukraine, I was there 2016 and 2017, as the fateful election was happening, right? Um, and I, at, at the beginning, I felt like I was ringing the alarm bell saying like, hey, this thing is a really big deal over here. And, and in the United States, we are not paying enough attention to it. Lo and behold, 2016 happens. Uh, as you know, the election unfolds and then we get more information about what Russia was up to, um, there was a lot of people in Ukraine and across Central and Eastern Europe saying, I told you so, because this stuff had been happening to them for you know, the last decade plus. And that's what my book looks at. It looks at five case studies from Estonia, Georgia, Ukraine, uh, Czech Republic, and Poland, and how each of those countries dealt with Russian disinformation over the past decade, and tries to distill some lessons for not only the United States, but the UK and any other government that wants to learn them. I also think it'll be interesting for some Central and Eastern Europeans to read, because honestly, mm -hmm. um, some governments are doing better than others at coping with the problem. So that's the book. At the Wilson Center lately, I've been working on issues of tech regulation, we in the United States, I think, have a responsibility to put out democratic and human rights-based tech regulation. And right now, we're not doing any of that. I mean, we can talk about the, the Trump executive mm -hmm. order if you want, but that's not the way things yes. should be happening. If, we, if yeah. we put those parameters out through Congress in ways that protected people's voices, protected free speech, we wouldn't be dealing with this situation today. But we've abdicated that responsibility. So that's something that I advocate for. And then I'm also going to be starting to do a little bit of research on gender and disinformation um, and how in, in particular women 
are targeted by malign actors in order to um, upset the balance of power and create less equitable uh, online conversations and, and democratic discourse overall. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. And of course, you're right. I uh, I do bridge the gap between um, between Eastern Europe and and the U.S. and um, Shireen's totally right about about what's going on ahead of 2020. You know, we're still seeing the same groups targeted uh, by malign actors, but the homegrown disinformation has always been such a huge problem. And now I think we're seeing information laundering. We are seeing rather than fake accounts, fake pages, fake organizations, we're seeing the narratives that the Kremlin likes to put out or that China likes to put out being laundered through quote unquote legitimate outlets here in the United States. And I'm not talking about mainstream outlets. I'm talking about fringy stuff and just unattributed memes on the internet, right? That people don't realize, you know, you can't trust everything you read on the internet. And um, something that came up for me recently, a, a study that I read was talking about how especially older people don't have that um, that kind of reflex in their mind because they're so used to watching TV, listening to the radio where things are curated for them. And so they're, they're looking at Facebook or Twitter as a curated feed full of trustworthy sources when really the first thing any of us do, no matter what news source you're looking at should be online is, is to question it, to be a little bit skeptical and wonder like what, what, what's the point here? Because disinformation runs on an emotional manipulation and, uh, and if we feel ourselves getting mad, the best thing we can do, especially during this infodemic of, of COVID-19, is to walk away, practice informational distancing, just like you practice social distancing, <laughs> and, and think, why, why, do I, why is somebody trying to manipulate me right now? And then consider about sharing it. Think about you know, what, what's going on there. Um, I think we all need to practice that, every single one of us, even me who studies disinformation for a living. <laughs> I agree. Listen, all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disinformation distancing. That's the term. And by the way, tell us your book again. We're going to say it again throughout the show. But Sure. It's How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. Out July you know, 9th. So I'll have a copy and I hope you'll sign it. However, the safest way to do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Maria, you're in Ukraine right now. And you're a special correspondent with uh, Kromansky right now. So can you just tell us, just being in Ukraine, there's a new administration. How do you feel the, the battle against disinformation is being handled in Ukraine? Well, um, I feel it's a little bit all over the place, I would say. Uh, some things are being done, some things are being done, but like a little bit too late. Uh, some things are done efficiently, I'm gonna give it to them. But there's been like a lot of changes even after you know the, the new government, even after the new president uh, came into uh, power. Like there has been a change of the government just recently during COVID times and um, different ministers kept being replaced, like especially uh, now even more relevant with the, with the COVID situation. The health minister, we had like three health ministers within like oh, the space of two months, I think. Mm -hmm. So there is all of that, obviously, which you have to take into account. Like there's, there are still a lot of changes. It's not like the new government came and everything um, is um, like clear. There is all of that going on. Uh, but on the side of uh, disinformation, like the 
the one important factor is um, the, the influence of Russian websites and social media in Ukraine, because a lot of people, that's how a lot of people consume information through the internet and VK Kontakte used to be very popular in Ukraine, uh, for example, um, before, you know, before the war started. And it was banned, uh, by the way. Yeah, it was just the ban was just extended uh, just um, a couple of weeks ago, which is yep. a good thing, I would say. And it was so that's what I meant when I said that some decisions are taken like, you know, very late. So this was um, th- this ban was extended, like literally almost like on the day when it came to expire. So that was like a last uh, minute decision by Zelensky. But I think it definitely like changed some things, like with this, with specifically this uh, this ban on on the websites and social media. Like a lot of a lot of people, like speaking from my experience, a lot of uh, like none of my friends now use contact to be um, which is basically um, like a Russian fake, like Russian version of Facebook. But it's also where a lot of news are being shared. There are a lot of groups, a lot of uh, different pages, and. Um, a lot of uh, propaganda because a lot of these people on, on this media are um, like Russians and they have like some very strong views about uh, their president, about uh, mm-hmm. the situation in Ukraine. And there's also like another website on the Klasniki where it, it gathers like a, an older sort of yeah. audience. And uh, a lot of these people also share like whenever I went, like I only went on this website like a couple of times, but whenever I go there, it's just such ridiculous things being shared. Uh, so a lot of these websites are no longer being used as actively. Like maybe some people go like very occasionally, but um, not the same extent as it used to be. And then also a lot of uh, Russian news sites are um, banned here. So I think that is um, that is a good thing. Um, I want to ask you a question, Maria, because you're saying something that's very important that the the, the Ukrainian government banned the, uh, you know, it's the most popular Russian language website in Ukraine. It's uh, Contact You. And a lot of our American audience or, or folks in the, you know, Western Europe, for example, they are unfamiliar with the concept of a government being able to ban a, you know, a social media entity. For example, um, we would never think about, well, I don't know, we have Donald Trump as president or AKA Agent Orange. Um, but generally speaking in the United States, nobody would dare think that, uh, that, that the government would ban Twitter or Facebook. But everyone I talked to in Ukraine says that banning contact was a very necessary component to fighting disinformation. And so can you just explain that dynamic because our audience in America Again, that's unfamiliar territory for us. Sure, yeah. And I agree that it might sound like very weird to a foreign um, listener or a foreign um, reader, like when they read this news. And I remember when it just got, the, for the, like the first time that this ban was introduced, um, even I think some international organizations spoke against it because it does kind of sounds like sound like it's uh, trying to, you know, trying to affect people's freedom on the internet. But that all of that happened when, you know, when the war started in Ukraine. And so all of these things that we encountered first in Ukraine, I think people in the US and in the UK and other European countries, they started thinking about it later because they didn't really have to encounter this. So I remember like a couple of years after this ban was introduced, like other countries started thinking about like, banning or introducing some sort of limitations to like Russia today with different Russian uh, 
TV channels, media. So I think the re- yeah. So the reason why we started so early because it was really necessary, but it wasn't realized outside of Ukraine how necessary these things might be because other countries didn't um, encounter similar problems until you know. You don't have Rus- we don't have Russian tanks on our soil for starters. I think that's a really good point. Um, I think, you know, the, the Ukrainian ban is, is different. Um, I, of course, I would not want to see President Trump or any other president making a decision like this in a democratic country. But the, there's a difference with Ukraine and the difference is that, you know, these social media networks are used as, as weapons of, of war. And in fact, there are, you know, recruitment toward the separatists and toward the, the separatist enclaves going on on both of them. I think that's an important underscore. Now, that being said, I hope that the Ukrainian government understands that there should be a sunset clause to all of this stuff, to all of these bans. I, I think in a little, in, in some degree, the Ukrainian government has gotten a, a, a bit ban happy. Banning things isn't necessarily the way we want to go here. We, I think we got to inform people. Um, and that, I think, you know, is, is something that the Zelensky administration has tried or at least started to try to do and perhaps um, hasn't really fulfilled all of its promises in that way. They've said that they want to re- reach out more to people in the East who are more affected by Russian disinformation and are trying to get a TV channel set up and things like that. Um, but of course, COVID has, has undermined a lot of those um, a lot of those plans. But my general feeling is that whenever possible, and of course, war is an extenuating circumstance. Again, Ukraine is the only country in Europe with a hot war going on. um, And that's important to note. But uh, whenever possible, we should not be using bans because if those bans then fall into the hands of a dictator, things could get really ugly really quickly. I wanted to uh, bring up going to the next topic, which I think is important, but I think it's kind of under reported, which is this um, Biden investigation that's being pushed by the Senate, right? And so I'm going to read part of a story from Politico. Basically, we know now that Senator Marco Rubio is taking on the acting uh, chairmanship of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee. And so there's a there's a uh, story that's written about this, and I'll I'll read it, and then I will talk about it. Donald Trump's allies on Capitol Hill are pushing aggressive new investigations targeting the president's political opponents. Marco Rubio isn't joining the fray, as Rubio assumes the acting chairmanship of the Senate Intelligence Committee. The Florida Republican is distancing distancing himself from a GOP-led probe targeting Hunter Biden. He has declined to embrace Trump's Obamagate claims, and he is warning the Republicans spearheading the Biden investigation not to promote Russian disinformation in the process. And the quote is, I'm not going to accuse any member who believes that they are exercising oversight to be colluding with the foreign power, Rubio said in an interview last week. I will say to you that I think it's pretty clear that the Russians are constantly pursuing narratives that they believe will drive conflict in our policies and divide us against each other. The Senate Intelligence Committee historically has been bipartisan, has been a bipartisan one, excuse me, but Rubio is taking over at a time when partisan tensions in the Senate are perhaps higher than they have ever been, which may bring drawbacks to the influential perch. And Trump is actively encouraging Republicans to join his election year revenge play against those who led investigations that ensnared him, his associates, and presidential campaign. 
Rubio, on the other hand, appears to be more concerned about Russian interference in the next presidential election, a sensitive subject for Trump, who bristles at any mention of Moscow swaying American elections. And so I want to talk with you, uh, Shireen. Like, here's the thing. This, this Biden investigation is bullshit. Okay, yeah. let's just, it, okay, I think we can all agree that it's bullshit. So what I'm more concerned about is the number of people across America who don't know much about Ukraine and who don't know how to distill what's true and what's not, because normally, uh, as the article notes, and along with the intelligence community, when it comes to foreign affairs, particularly with Russia, or you know the Kremlin more specifically, there's always been a, a somewhat bipartisan stance that we have to protect the national security of yes. America above all politics, but that's not happening with Trump. And so tell us from your angle, <laughs> how, how dangerous is this? My goodness. Um, so, I mean, just, just from an overarching, you know, framework, let's just be clear. He's, he's aligned himself with, with dictators and with, 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 um, with Russia as well as North Korea, as well as in some instances, whether we know it or not, China. Um, the problem I think ultimately with him, which we don't always talk about, is in my opinion that the emoluments clause that you know he he his businesses is taking money from all, from 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 different foreign entities, and that is supposed to uh, not happen when a president takes over, and that allows us that protection from a national security interference. And we don't have that. As a matter of fact, the AG is, is defending the president against the emoluments clause. Um, and, and so that's in itself an American system issue. <laughs> Explain what that is so for people who don't know. Uh, oh, that, um, uh, first of all, the, every, um, every president is supposed to dissolve their uh, business relationships so that they don't have... Um, um, uh, uh, conflicts of interest from a business perspective, i.e. they will be making money from from their business. But the second part of that with, with the emolument, emoluments clause is about is that they're not supposed to take any foreign money um, to, and that is because we don't want to have a president that, that uh, will not take action against a foreign entity when necessary if we um, if, 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 it, if it impacts our national security. Um, and so having a president who, who is, um, you know, owes money to foreign entities uh, puts us at, at a national security risk. Um, and we haven't done anything about that. And that's part of, uh, and that has nothing to do with the foreign entities who can use their money and the president will take it. <laughs> it's about us holding that person accountable and we're not doing that. Yeah, that's, that's the whole thing, right? I wanted to break, because that's that was the biggest thing with me, right? Yes, the Kremlin is engaging in this stuff, but ultimately, I'm more concerned with the failures of our own structures here. And that's the way that it works. To me, yeah. if we have failing institutions that are not interrogating Trump for his behavior, thus the Republicans protecting him during impeachment, right? I mean, all this whole, we have the process, but it's not working because the Republicans are not allowing it to. And I'm not saying this from a partisan standpoint. It's just the truth. It's not happening, right? Yeah, I mean, the rule of law all of a sudden doesn't work right now, right? All of a sudden, our own rule, our own rules, our own structures that are normally in place all of a sudden don't exist anymore. And that is a fundamental, that's, a, that, that's a, a constitutional crisis, basically. I mean, we're, in, we're in, and, we, and we've created it uh, and we're allowing it. 
Um, so, so the white the, people created it. Oh well, yeah, okay. Uh, you know, no, the reason why I'm saying this, and I think that's the important when I, you know, we're going to talk about colonialism. No, the rules, the rules for black and brown people in this country will stay at the at the highest kilts, but but the rules for white people is always like there's always these little markers that can be moved and moved and moved and moved and moved when necessary, and that's the whole thing with the with, with, with what's happening in Congress and there and and the fact that they're saying right now it's okay to like go after Biden's son that has nothing to do with um, Biden's role. Uh, when he was in office and his role even now. And, it, and, it's, and it's irrelevant, right? But let's be clear, right now, the president's children are actually participating in foreign actions, making money off of it while they're in the office. It's a kleptocracy. I mean... It's a kleptocracy. I mean, you know, um, it, we, we function as a kleptocracy. And for those who don't know this janky political science language, it's basically when you use the state resources as your own piggy bank to empower your friends and your family. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what it is. And I, I wanted to have this episode on because I spent so much time in Ukraine and Georgia. And when we're in grad school, we use this language like third world developing world. And we use this language like emerging democracy and all of this stuff. And we never frame it within the, within the context of America. Mm-hmm. Right. We, we never frame it that way, but. Because we're not supposed to be the third world country. We are, we have been behaved, but by the way, we were always behaving like a third world country. We're just telling other people that they were worse than we were. And now we're watching how bad we really are. And to me, that's that was the whole reason that Russia put participated in disinformation because Russia wanted to say, "You think you're better than us? You're just like us in so many ways." And so, and so, so, so that's yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and not only that, but then dismantle our relationships with with our allies. So because he's um, beholden to where his money is sitting. He's more aligned with the, with our with people who were not allies before than our actual allies. And and if anything was to really happen at this point, as far as I'm concerned, most of our allies would not show up to back us up. It, I, I would, yeah, definitely, Maria. You know, when I'm like, do people talk about the Biden investigation across media networks? There. Well, we did when the whole Trump Zelensky phone call thing emerged. Um, that became a topic for discussion, but not really in terms of like, nobody really discussed American politics. It was more about just the Zelensky part. And then we actually did some Vox Populi back at the time, whether like what people know about uh, and what they think about the call and everything. And people were just like, either they didn't care or they were like, well, this is normal in like for presidents to talk like that. So I feel like uh, the media the media outlets definitely did pick up on this story, uh, but to the public in general, I feel like most people just don't really care enough. I think probably the, the better lifestyle, uh, the better life conditions people have, uh, you know, the more time they have to care about other things. But when people are poorer, like, and when there's a war going on, like, different things occupy people's minds. So I feel like a lot of more people are concerned about uh, their financial situation, the war in the Donbass, and uh, different things that are directly affect them. I think the same is true. The same is true for the United States, frankly. I, I just pulled up um, when recently as this Biden thing came back, I, I luckily I was when I was finishing my book, um, impeachment was happening. And it was actually the perfect epilogue to the book. So I pulled up a passage that 
if, if you don't mind, I'll read from just yeah, read, I think, please, please. I think it, it it really encapsulates not only, you know, Ukrainians don't care about the U.S. political scandal, but also Americans don't, unfortunately, really care about the rest of the world. So um, in the epilogue of the book, I wrote, the Trump-Ukraine scandal is the perfect environment in which to encourage the spread of disinformation. The president's missteps concern U.S. foreign policy, about which Americans care little. It involves the betrayal of an ally, about which Americans know even less, and what little they do know is colored by the legacy of communism. They say Ukraine is corrupt, Ukraine is useless, Ukraine should be part of Russia, why should we care about Ukraine? And when members of Congress repeat falsehoods that Ukraine worked with the Democratic Party, allegedly, to try to steal the election from Trump, this is me editorializing, obviously that's not true, (laughs) or that the Biden family engaged in corrupt activity in Ukraine, also not true, it sounds plausible to many Americans. They don't have the time or the volition to understand the details of Ukraine's anti-corruption reforms since 2014. And they are unaware or perhaps choose to forget that members of Trump's own inner circle, just like Shireen was saying, including his former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, have made millions of dollars supporting corrupt Ukrainian officials. Rudy Giuliani has also worked in Ukraine. And that's just Ukraine. Obviously, this extends way beyond uh, Ukraine. And different standards are applied to different people. But But Americans just don't. Foreign policy has never been an election issue, unfortunately. But, but, but here's the thing, right? So when Giuliani was going around Kiev creating his bullshit documentary, <laughs> here's the first thing. As people who were like in Ukraine, like Maria particularly. And, I was uh, there you, that week as well. <laughs> these people are nobodies. Like he scraped at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Like they have no respect whatsoever. And... I'm, it was just really in my brain, like, oh, my God, like he's but but here's the thing, that, which goes back to the racism point, is that I just have a hard time believing that racism is not underpinning all of this when it comes to Trump's base, because there and it's been proven by studies that much of his base and much of the Republican, uh, many, many Republican voters and supporters still believe that Obama is a Muslim born in Kenya. Okay. And we're not saying Muslim as if it's a bad thing or pejorative, but it's used pejoratively, right? In a negative light. It's, It's pretty much telling me that you believe what you want. You believe the lies that you want to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that, no, 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 you, no, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's deeper than that. It's, it's not so much you believe the lies you want to believe. It's, it's that you have a belief system that you were raised in, especially in America, and you sit with that as your, as your baseline. So anything that matches that, what, and especially if it's, even if it's, a, even if it's disinformation or a lie, if it matches that, then you keep it. And this is, I mean, this is our, this is part of our problem. This is why the disinformation worked because there are way too many people in this country that think in, in, in the middle of where we are right now and, 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 and what just happened in, in this country, black people are always having issues with the police department, right? And white people are always using the police as their weapon. That, that is the same structural system that we always have. And so if you have anything that allows you to keep saying that black people are a problem, they're the real criminals. The state needs to do something about those people. 
then everything else that you get told around that about those people allows you to say, okay, this must be true. And that's, and that's the ultimate problem with why uh, black identity was targeted because we have that problem in this country and we've never resolved it. And, 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 and everything that's happening now, even, even with, even with the disinformation campaigns, we're still taking video shots of white people calling the police on black people for no reason. While we're also watching police kill black people in front of us videotaped for no reason. So it's, it's like, even, if, even some people have those two pictures in their heads, they will still deny that that happens more often than not. Because the people who, who are being dehumanized are the ones that are used to being dehumanized so much that they don't see the injustices that, they, that they're witnessing. And so right now they're going to say, we're the, you know, with, with the protests, we're the bad people, right? Because they're destroying property. Yeah. When, what they're really doing is they're protesting their government, which we have the right to do. It's in the Constitution. But somehow when we do it, it's different than when they do it. When they're sitting with their guns, mm-hmm. taking over state buildings, it's a very different thing. Um, and so we, we're still living in that kind of existence in our country. And that's the, that conflict in our country is the kind of conflict that's in other countries in different ways. Yet we think that we're, we're beyond that and better than that. When, when, when now with the media we, and, and, and with social media and with phones, we're watching the, we're witnessing the injustices over and over and over again. So it's not so much that it's lies, it's that, that we, have, we have sat in a country that had gatekeeping media that mostly was being told by white people. Mm-hmm. And so when black people get to tell their narrative, all of a sudden white people are going, no, that's not the way it works. It's always been this other way. And it's like, no, we've been living through this this entire time and now you mm-hmm. see it and you're still denying it. Maria, I want to ask you, piggybacking off of Shireen's point, how has media, particularly your organization, been grappling with the ways to tell these stories? Because in American media, I know with mainstream American media, there's a denial in accurately interrogating the points that Shireen is taking on. But within the Ukrainian context, and I have my opinions, but you're more qualified to talk about it because you're in Ukraine and you're Ukrainian. How has the media been dealing with the best ways to inform the Ukrainian public on disinformation, particularly that disinformation coming from the Kremlin and elsewhere? I mean, to start um, answering this question, you have to understand that Ukrainian media landscape is very, very complicated. Like Ukraine, historically, since the since the, the independence, since the um, breakdown of the Soviet Union, like Ukraine has kind of been almost like almost everything in Ukraine has kind of been divided between different oligarchs, and that's always really been the case since then, and that's still the case now, unfortunately, even though like Zelensky made this like part of his promises, like he's going to really fight corruption and he's going to like the oligarchize everything. And um, we can still see that, you know, the media landscape is still pretty much the same. We have like different channels belonging to different uh, oligarchs specifically that like Pinchuk owns a few channels. Then there is, uh, there are three TV channels owned by um, a friend, a very close uh, ally of um, Medvedchuk who's um, mm-hmm. Whose, uh, child, whose child is, like, Putin is the godfather of his godfather. Uh, child. Uh, so these three channels, uh, like, 
have this very like pro-Russian narrative. And then there are other TV channels. So basically, if you are an independent media outlet like Hromadsky is, it's very, very difficult. Specifically, like if to say how this is, um, how we are affected by this. Like we are giving up um, being like a TV channel um, altogether because it's a very expensive thing. And um, the TV channels that continue existing in Ukraine, they all are... Um, funded by oligarchs. And so this is something we cannot like afford to, you know, be on satellite and uh, be on people's TV. Uh, so we're just going to be mainly on, on the internet. Um, so this is just like one sort of angle of looking at, like it's a very complicated media landscape and it's very hard if you don't have a, an oligarch behind you. And usually these oligarchs, they are closely affiliated with one political uh, figure. Um, and um, I mean, this, this information itself, like we did have some, like just recently, I don't know if you have heard about the disinformation law that was, uh, they tried to introduce, like that seemed to be, that, that seemed to really, it, if, if that happened, like it would have really affected uh, journalists. So basically the law itself, and I think that's something that Nina sort of said uh, early on when I talked about uh, how we fight disinformation coming from the Kremlin, that there are still a lot of issues, even like the Ukrainian government can use something to censor the journalists within Ukraine. So this can affect uh, journalists within Ukraine. So the law itself kind of said that the government has the the right to decide who's a a proper journalist and who's not. And that was like a completely ridiculous um, aspect. And Hermatske, like my organization, we were against um, this law. Um, So they wanted to create this like a society of journalists. And basically, if you are allowed to be in this society, then you are... consider a journalist and you have this like journalist um, pass or whatever it is and then you're allowed to go to different events uh, but then the government would be the one deciding whether you can be part of this society wow i understand who poroshenko is special poroshenko but one i think what a lot of people don't appreciate but perhaps will appreciate later is that the greatest thing he's that he did was to keep the country from falling apart Petro Poroshenko, who's a former president of Ukraine before uh, Zelensky got in, for those who don't follow Ukrainian politics, is uh, he was a, from everybody I spoke to, he's a competent diplomat. Um, He, you know, and again, he's an oligarch businessman, all those other things, his wealth expanded. And yes, he's all those things, but the country didn't fall apart. But for a country that's dealing with the war against Russia with no help, from a, a military standpoint and from a disinformation standpoint, the fact that it still exists is something is, 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 is a godsend, right? And I want to ask you, when it, when it comes to dealing with these types of disinformation threats, do you feel like the country, maybe it was better off under Poroshenko than this current administration that has a whole lot of red flags so far? You know, I think it's it's hard to say. Um, I think I made it clear that I don't particularly support the social media ban, but I understand why it was brought into place under Poroshenko. Um, I think one mistake uh, that, that Poroshenko and his people made is that they tried to really freeze out the, the eastern um, part of the country and, and really gave up on communicating with them. Um, and Zelensky, because he is a Russian speaker from Krivirich, which is a Russian-speaking city, a very working-class city, um, I think he understood the and as a, as a former, you know, performer, comedian, showman, understood the necessity of, of reaching out to people. And I, that's something 
um, that I think we could stand to learn from here in the United yeah. States too. You know, it's Shireen was talking about how disinformation runs on these pre-existing vulnerabilities in our society, like racism, like classism, um, all of these things. Ukraine has its own set of vulnerabilities. Um, there's this East-West divide. There's linguistic issues. There's obviously corruption and all these things that can be exploited. And you have to address those issues. You have to reach out to people. And so while <laughs> during the campaign, the Zelensky campaign made a big show of saying that they wanted to reach out to people in the East and they would start this uh, TV station, again, they haven't really gotten there yet. I hope that they do get there. I think his messaging, his way of communicating, the reason he got 73% of the vote is because he's an effective communicator and, and that message appeals to people. He's only been in office a year. I'm not sure if he can deliver on it. We'll see. Um, but I think, you know, that being said, he's done some pretty deft diplomatic maneuvers over the past uh, <laughs> over the past year. He's really, I mean, you know, every every crisis that came, people were like holding their breath, especially at the beginning of the year. It seems like a million years ago. Remember the. Uh, the Ukrainian Airlines plane was shot down in Iran, and everyone was like, yeah. oh, how's Zelensky going to F this one up? He actually did a really good job with that. He did. And he did a good job navigating impeachment. Seems like the, the COVID stuff is, is going pretty decently, given the, the issues that Ukraine might have had. And I also think this is another way that he's been communicating very well. I was in the UK the first week um, that all of the travel bans and things were happening. I was trying to get home to the States, and I follow Zelensky on Instagram just to keep up with things. And looking at his Instagram and all of the measures that they were taking and how quickly and clearly he was able to communicate that compared with, yikes, what we were dealing with in the States and also what the UK was dealing with with Boris Johnson, it was like night and day. I mean, it was crazy to say like, this is, this is actually good communications coming from the Ukrainian government compared to what we're seeing in, in the States. Yeah. yeah, yeah so I think it, it's a mixed bag. We'll see what happens in the future. So you're talking about his, his effective communication. I'm going to read to you some of the tweets that Trump put out a few hours ago. Let's talk about his communication. Mm. And I'm going to read it like he talks. Twitter is doing nothing about all of the lies and propaganda being put out by China or the radical left Democratic Party. They have targeted Republicans, conservatives, and the president of the United States, Section 230 should be revoked by Congress. Until then, it will be regulated. I don't know what the fuck that means. Oh, I know what it means. He doesn't know what he's talking about, though, but I know what it means. I've been having multiple <laughs> conversations with people about Section 230, which is just this really, like, we have, we've been in, 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 on, on the Hill day, day in and day out on what Section 230 should be or should not be for the tech companies and social media. So he's talking about something that somebody whispered in his ear and he has no concept of it. We've been litigating that in this country for quite some time. So the fact that he's like throwing it out there as a solution is just one, one of those things where he, he's mad that like his, his words are being challenged for the first time. And that's our problem, right? Nobody wants to challenge his words. Anyone who does, he goes after. And so this is nothing different than, than that. So he's thinking about a way to go after private companies in America. I mean, just, just even think about that. I mean, not only is he uh, um, um, buddying up with dictators, but he's trying to, uh, trying to participate in some of those same activities. He's trying to tell what states can and cannot do for elections, um, what, what he thinks he should be able to tell governors to do or not do about protecting their people from COVID. 
uh, and now he's telling private companies what they can and cannot do with, uh, with, with their platforms. And so that's a pattern that he has, and that's not unusual. But I promise you, if he was on the other end of this and the president told him, uh, you know, that he couldn't do X, Y, and Z with his business, he, he'd be in lawsuit after lawsuit. So he knows uh, what he's doing is something he would not have, he would not accept on, on, on the opposite side of that as a quote-unquote businessman in this country. Because the, not only free speech, but their, their freedom to, uh, to make profit has always been uh, something that he still wants, uh, even while he's in the government. <laughs> um, just be clear. <laughs> um, but the key part to that, that, uh, that communication style that you're talking about, I'm, I'm going to be very candid. That is one of the most um, basic, dumbed-down versions of communication for one group of people, and it ain't us. Okay, just just make sure it's clear. He is not he's not using Twitter to talk to anyone from a political perspective, from an intellectual perspective, from a framework that is about what the government can and cannot do. He's all he's doing is spreading lies and talking talking in a way that he says, "Well, I get to do whatever I want in this country because I'm a white man, and so I'm going to say that on a daily basis, so that everybody else here." knows that and and of course we're watching other people behave in that same manner because they think that that's the way it should always be when that's not the case absolutely so nina i want to go back to the vulnerabilities aspect because that's as as we kind of wrap up everything i think that's important that's why i talked about imperialism and white supremacy yeah because i that's that underpins everything right yes and and so i want to talk about those vulnerabilities from a ukraine aspect uh, so tell us what those are, because Shireen definitely breaks down what they are for America, but for Ukraine, what, what, what are they? So, and I would love to hear Maria's thoughts on yeah. this as well. I, I mean, I think clearly the, the class and linguistic divide is, is something that is huge in Ukraine. Ukraine has an endemic problem with corruption that it has been fighting against for the past 30 years, made a lot of progress in the past six years since, since Maidan, the revolution in 2014. Um, but uh, the people have real grievances in society. They see people, their mayors, their elected rep- representatives driving around in BMWs and Mercedes, right, while they live on a couple hundred dollars a month um, and the government doesn't provide adequate services for them. So when you look at Russian disinformation in Ukraine, a lot of it is targeting people's distrust in the system and the government and their representation. Um, and there are some, you know, uh, similar things that target the ethnic divides between Russians and Ukrainians. Although I will say, since I first um, lived in Ukraine and the many trips I've taken since then, I do think that that is moving in toward a um, a more united uh, Ukrainian identity now. And I think that's a uniting experience that the war and conflict has brought people um, and something that probably backfired against Russia. Mm-hmm. But um, the third thing that I would name, and this is more in the international arena, but because of um, Ukraine being kind of like the, I hate to use this term, but the the kind of ugly duckling of the post-Soviet you know, region, um, the international relations between Ukraine and its international partners are also undermined by Russia. So that um, is a good example of the Netherlands referendum in 2014. Basically, the Netherlands was voting on whether or not to adopt the 
association agreement that Ukraine had with the EU and Russia got involved and tried to undermine that process. They're trying to undermine Ukraine's relations with Poland and Hungary, which are two of the biggest advocates for Ukraine in the European Union, bringing up old historical and ethnic issues dealing with World War II. So there's there's a lot. Um, Explain, do you mind going into that, Nina? Because with our audience, when they, because a lot of the people who I'm reaching out to, they think about, in the, you know, Ukrainians and Hungarians in the context of being all white. We all know yeah. that's not true. <laughs> but but kind of break that down as best you can because a lot of people don't understand those nuances. Okay, trying to distill World War II history into into just a couple minutes here. It's a hard, uh, hard job. Um, Maria will help you a little yeah, bit. Yeah, true. So I think what the overview I would give is um, the borders in Central and Eastern Europe changed a lot over the end of the uh, 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, They were overseen by kingdoms like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, uh, the Prussians, now the Germans, and things changed a lot. World War I happened, borders were redrawn, lots of new independent nations came up. Uh, Ukraine itself was split between mostly the Soviet Union in that period and then Poland, newly independent Poland, which hadn't existed for a long time, uh, and then Hungary as a nation was born as well. Um, And all of these uh, ethnicities and nationalities obviously got drawn into World War II. Central and Eastern Europe were the, as Timothy Snyder has called it, the bloodlands of that war. Millions and millions of people died. Um, And uh, there were some atrocities committed on uh, pretty much much every side of the war. All sides, yeah. And, uh, and so there's a lot to be exploited with those historical tensions there. And because of the way that the borders were redrawn after World War II, and again, I am, I am really glossing over a lot of the detail here, uh, yeah. um, but there are enclaves in Ukraine's West where there are Hungarian speakers, there are Polish speakers. Um, of course, in the Eastern part of the country, that's more heavily Russian speaking. So um, it's not quite the melting pot that we might think of for the United States, but it's certainly um, more ethnically and linguistically diverse than a lot of other countries in Central and Eastern Europe. Oh, and, very much so, yeah. And, and so that um, is, is, can be ripe for exploitation, particularly when we're talking about those historical issues where um, there, are, there were lives on the line, right? Um, and they're very, um, since we, we tend to think of World War II in America as something that happened a long time ago and that really didn't affect us because the fighting didn't happen here. But Ukraine, mm-hmm. Poland, all of these countries... That's where it happened, and there are still so many people alive who who dealt with those horrors um, in their personal lives. And if if they didn't deal with them, certainly their grandparents dealt with them, mm-hmm. their parents dealt with them, and those are stories and traumas that survive generations. So these are really divisive issues that um, can be exploited by by anybody. So one thing that's happened um, in particular in Ukraine-Poland relations is the desecration of memorials to uh, either Polish soldiers or Ukrainian soldiers, um, including uh, in, you know, the... Um, the militias, some of them were not totally sanctioned militias that have kind of checkered histories. Um, and who, who do we think 
desecrated these memorials. There's a lot of evidence that it wasn't actually uh, Ukrainians or Poles acting of their own volition, but that they might have been paid by some foreign power. So similar dynamics to things that we've seen um, happening yeah. in, in the States. And it's, you know, Ukraine in very many ways is the laboratory for a lot of the yeah. tactics that Russia uses elsewhere. And we're going to get back to that as we close out. But Maria, uh, what, what do you have to add to that? Talking about the, the vulnerabilities uh, that make Ukraine susceptible, Ukrainians susceptible to disinformation? I mean, there are many, many things. Like, it's hard to just give one mm-hmm. answer. I think maybe um, why Zelensky's approach is good uh, is because, as Nina pointed out earlier, he is trying to speak to different people, people in the East. So when, when some things are happening and, you know, it's... Um, an issue that uh, like polarizes some Ukrainians, like you know, because we did have this protest um, against Zelensky. Like pe- a lot of people went out to the streets uh, recently, just saying that Poroshenko, uh, that sorry, Zelensky is trying to um, like cut. Uh, they they say like cap- uh, capitalization. Like they're saying that basically that Zelensky is trying to give away like Ukraine to Russia. Like basically trying to give in. Uh, but uh, when I when when these situations are happening and I hear people like we interviewed some people uh, in the Donbas, like asking them how they feel about some things that are happening and developing, and a lot of them are like very happy about these positive changes and that you know there's indication that uh, the war might be o- might be over soon. Um, that really like warms my heart, and that's when I think like okay, so. If we can make those people in the East who have been going through, like dealing with this war for um, nearly six years now, or is it it six years now? um, Like I, I'm very happy about those changes. So I feel like that's probably one of the biggest struggles that we are dealing with now is you know the domestic issues, and once we deal with that. I think that we can pick up on other issues, but obviously corruption, as Nina pointed out as well, that's something that's been for far longer than six years. So there are many different aspects. I think Nina kind of pointed out them very uh, well. Um, Yeah, but I would say these two are uh, big ones. So Shireen, when I listen to Maria (laughs) talk about the Eastern Ukrainians, we're here in America, we're Black folk in America. The hope that she has for the citizens of the Donbas and Luhansk and Eastern Ukraine. I don't have it for these people who are backing Trump, his racism, his lies, his corruption, his kleptocratic behavior be damned. I believe that that group of people are a smaller part of America, right? I'm saying that from an overarching perspective about who all Americans are. Um, and, and this particular group is a group that's trying to hold on to some really old thinking that this country was founded on. And, um, and that thinking, um, no matter how much you want to talk about the Constitution or not, um, started in 1619. And even when the Constitution happened, when 1776 happened, there were people who were enslaved. So their frameworks are operating from those, those people who have been dehumanized on, the, on this land. That includes Native Americans. They should always be seen as less than on this land versus those who came and stole it. Because, <laughs> you, know, you know, we're still considered criminals and thieves when we know that, you know, a foreign entity came, came and stole <laughs> this land and then took over it and called it America. Um, so I, I'm not trying to be facetious about that. I'm saying that my, my hope is 
um, that the majority of us stand up more than we allow these people who seem so loud and small. Um, in my opinion, the, the, the loud, some of the loudest voices in the room are the people who are the smallest people um, and, and, and the most insecure. And, um, and that insecurity comes from something they think that they're missing or something they think they're not getting, something they think they, they are entitled to over anybody else. And a lot of those arguments of, of, this, um, of these frameworks are what is embedded in, in most of the things that, that um, the current president actually says. Um, and so he feeds that. But the truth is, he doesn't care about them any more than he cares about any one of us. They, 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 I mean, and that's the key to it. It's like, he, he's, he, our country still has groups of people who are millionaires, billionaires, and now I think we have a trillionaire who don't care Going about to the people. be on his way. Hey, come on, Be- Bezos, yeah, Jeff Bezos, yeah. Who don't care about anyone who, um, who, who don't care about the workers, don't care about the cog in the wheel for them who helps them make money. Um, they, they, they don't care. They don't expect those people to ever make it to them. However, those people think that they're soon to be billionaires. Soon to be. So they want to make sure they stay aligned with that group versus understanding that what that group is doing and the policies are putting in place are not helping them. But they think that if those policies get in place, that we will be, we will be hurt, that, 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 that clusters of people will be hurt more. That's why we have, still have cages at the border, right? That still exists. We're, even during this pandemic, pandemic, even through this riot, there, there's still babies that are, being, that are still in Okay. And so uh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to say riots. I, I meant, you know, that's okay. It's programming us uprising. It's good. I have to remind myself to even not, not use that language. We yet. all do. <laughs> um, but, but, but these are people who are uprising against injustices. And, and so the concept that, um, that the, there's certain groups of people, uh, should, should be seen as dehumanized and the other groups of people, which is where white supremacy comes from are better than, and should have more than that group. Is literally what he's feeding into, and 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 saying every day. So that that cluster of people, I I think that they're going to still exist. I don't think we can get rid of them. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't either. <laughs> so 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 me looking forward to them being gone is not going to happen. What I'm looking forward to is the rest of us understanding how bad that is and not letting that happen again. This is, I mean, when I say that again, because we have a historical frame, we keep going back to this cycle. We went through this in civil rights. We went through this before civil rights. We went through this during, during the civil war. Like we have gone through these cycles. This is an American cycle that we constantly go through. And the cycle still, still is bent on racism because it, even the civil war was based on slavery, right? The, yeah. the, their, economic, their economic framework was based on enslaving people, free labor, Tip wages is based on slavery. The electoral college is based on slavery. Based on slavery, yeah. Okay. the 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 police department is based on the slave the slave patrols based on slavery. So we have a system up here in this government that's based on slavery. While we're constantly saying get over it, while we're constantly pretending like that's not part of why these policies are in place, and until we we recognize that and address that. I, I don't see a future for us. We have got to get back to understanding that part. I think the Project 1619 literally tried to over, like tell the, the narrative of that and how it's connected. And believe me, white scholars got real upset about real black upset. scholars telling a narrative about slavery. Oh, right? when they when when old girl when when Hannah Nicole Jones won that Pulitzer, oh, they a lot of them they lost. They were shit. upset. <laughs> I think well, they got a Pulitzer, right? They are upset because. 
the narrative that they are wanting to keep in America fits within the framework that the, the, the good people in this country are all white. And all the bad people are black and brown or the immigrants trying to come in. Exactly. And that narrative, as we know, is, is constantly being fed. And yet the, some of those people who are, who are speaking and talking, their parents and, 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 and them have been immigrants. Exactly. They're speaking about a certain group of immigrants that they want here. Exactly. And that's, that's the thing that drives me the most nuts, right? Especially, you know, I come from Polish and Ukrainian background. My grandfather came here. Uh, when he was, you know, just married. So I'm not far removed from from the immigrant story and the people mm-hmm. who for, who came even later than my grandfather did, mm-hmm. and somehow are forgetting about this, advocating for putting people in cages just for seeking a better life. My grandfather was a refugee from the war. You know, like I he, may he rest in peace. He he would not you know, be voting for these people. But but the fact that there are people who are, that we've lost touch with the fact that America is a nation of immigrants, that America is supposed to be this place where there is this tolerance, but we've never achieved that. We have to hope for better. We have to work for better. And do, and one, one of the things, one question that I'm always asked is how come you weren't on... TV in 2014 and 15 talking about Russia Gate and all these other things. And I would be on these shows and everything would start off with Russia, 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 Putin, 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 Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. And for a lot of people who don't know, I have a master's degree in Russian, East European, Eurasian studies. I did the Fulbright. I've lived in this region for years, right? It wasn't my training in the Russia-Ukraine field that helped me to understand what's going on in America. What helped me to really understand is the white supremacy that I grew up with as a black man in this country. And to this day, I don't think the American public via our mainstream media knows much of shit about Russia or Russians. Okay. <laughs> that, or or that, Ukraine. Or Ukraine. Or, you, or, or Ukraine. Like, it wasn't until the Biden thing that anybody even decides to even try to look at look at Ukraine. And that's the point. Oh, sorry, not the Biden thing. I'm sorry. The, the, the whistleblower piece. The whistleblower. Then right. the Biden thing. Like, the Biden thing came after that. Yeah. So it wasn't until that moment that even Americans want to understand what was going on in Ukraine. And, and by the way, and, and, I, and I appreciate this because Nina said something that I, don't, I want to pin and make sure that we don't, don't, don't lose this. And that is... Russia was testing a lot of disinformation in Ukraine before they started using it in the, in, in the United States. I have to tell you that that's absolutely true. I, the work that we were doing, we were doing what we call it. See, we, we, don't call, we didn't call it originally in the beginning uh, uh, disinformation. We called it computational propaganda. Mm-hmm. And so in D.C., with that conversation from a political perspective, we, we I, you know, I visit the embassies. We, t- we talk to other countries. We participate in other groups and collaborations to try to understand the computation propaganda that was going on from a different country perspective. But every time I was in the room with anyone from Ukraine who was talking about what was going on, not only were the online attacks amazing to watch and monitor, but the stories that they were telling about how they were countering it and how and what they were dealing with with little to no budgets, little to like you know smaller, smaller groups of people. Uh, it, it was amazing to have those conversations and see how how not only were they the testing bed, but even their reactions to it was completely different than what we do. 
Absolutely. And so, that, so go ahead. And that told me that that's why we weren't going to be ready for this because we didn't, we don't, we, we what was done there is a, a small portion to what can happen here because we still embedded with the white supremacy part. We're also embedded with the free speech part, you know, basically disinformation is a weaponization of free speech as well as um, the weaponization of divisions in this country that has always existed and we pretend don't ha- we don't have. So Nina, what can we learn as Americans from the Ukrainian experience when it comes to fighting disinformation? Because like Shireen said, it's, it's a testing, and like you said, it's a testing center, but there are so many lessons that we can learn from Ukraine, but I don't think we learn. I think that the government, the one that we currently have, they're not implementing any of it. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I wrote the book. I mean, I think Ukraine is in a lot of ways, not only a good example for the United States, it's a good example for the rest of Central and Eastern Europe, because Ukraine understands that this is about people, they understand their vulnerabilities. And I think they've invested in a lot of things about building public awareness about healing societal rifts about uh, education, media literacy, digital literacy, these are all things that have been invested in in Ukraine for a long time. And my research shows in every single country, anybody who's doing anything good about countering disinformation, they're investing in people. They're not just playing whack-a-troll, getting you know, fake accounts offline. They are, they are looking at the real issues that underlie and make them vulnerable to disinformation, and they are addressing those. And they're building awareness about the tools and tactics. And that's true in every single country that's that's working toward you know building a better information environment and ukraine is certainly one of the leaders in that yeah so so maria what can america learn from ukraine um just say um just because i remember what really like i remember when jens uh Trump came to power. Um, he was very like complimentary of Putin and um, like saying good things about him. And I'm not like the same things. Like for example, happened um, like Zelensky when he just came to power. He was also a bit like underestimating the threat that comes from Russia. So what would you say like don't underestimate some people in politics? Like always look at everything through like a lens and uh, just remember that every, like everybody tries to sway a situation to their own interests. So just never underestimate um, other countries that might, might want to push their interests. And Russia is definitely trying to push their own agenda, not just in Ukraine, in Georgia, in other Eastern European countries, in Africa now, uh, in the U S. So just yeah just don't underestimate those things we're dealing with so much right now and um we're we're dealing with the pandemic and the reason why we i i wanted to record this show is that i want this show to be a reminder that these issues are still going on and at state actors when chaos is going on this is their playground this is like they're they're happier than pigs and slop <laughs> right now um with, with with this going on and so with serene i would let you have the last closing words with um what should we be doing now as citizens as americans in particular 
um, when we hear, you know, uh, you know, in the context of this conversation to brace ourselves for another disinformation campaign. We're in the middle of a disinformation campaign right now. I mean, uh, there's, there's no brace yourself. It's, it's take action now. Cause if we, it's four years since 2016, if we haven't taken action now, I don't know when we're going to. And so the, the key part that I always tell every, every, I mean, seriously, I, the key part that I have, I tell every American, you have to, you know, sit back and remind yourself that you have probably been uh, sharing or participating in some form of disinformation. That's the first step that you have to take. You have accept, you have to accept that, and then move through through the, the rest of it of, of now saying, what am I looking at now, and what kind of information is coming at me, especially from a political perspective? Because I, you know, at this moment going into the election. I, I'll say it again. There were campaigns on both sides of the aisle participating in disinformation. So we have to now unravel all of that and, and basically say as, as voters that we now have to pay closer attention to what's being said and, and, and also do our own checks and balances about that information. We cannot, we cannot just share anything um, in any form uh, without, without doing our own due diligence. Um, no matter how it makes us feel or no, no matter who's sending it to us or how much we believe it. And the other part, I just want to just honestly say, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let this go is that anything that talks about black identity, you should be pausing and looking and reading and, 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 and dissecting more of that because that is, that is still the linchpin that's being used. And just because there's other things that, that's around that, there are other things outside the web around that. But if, but if you see things that is, is talking about issues around, uh, the, the key issues right now for people to pay attention to criminal justice reform, pay attention to details. Don't, don't let anyone tell you anything. Immigration, of course, pay attention to details. Um, even, even climate change is a new, a new form of, of uh, disinformation that, that we've, that we've captured. Um, and then also, of course, everything around uh, COVID-19, anything that has COVID-19 and elections in it, pause, dig deeper, Pay closer attention because COVID nineteen is being weaponized right now uh, for for uh, get, just to potentially suppress the vote. Um, and, and and the rest of it is uh, you know just read up on what we define as digital vote suppression, so that you can look at what you're looking so so you can have an understanding of what of what it, of what of what digital vote suppression looks like online because there are lines that cross uh, things that are illegal and most people don't know that. So just some quick examples. Uh, if you see anything that says uh, the, ro- the wrong voting date, that's illegal. If, if you ha- see anything that tells you the texture vote, that's illegal. Um, and anything that basically um, tells people that they should do X, Y, and Z to vote, uh, they should all pause about that. It's not just about like voter disengagement. It's, it's about voter suppression. And so we need to pay closer attention to anything that's around that going into uh, November. Absolutely. And so um, we did a show. And uh, one one thing I'm really proud of is that when we have these conversations, uh, a lot of times it's white men talking over each other and around each other and with each other. And so we have a panel of three women who are experts on this subject. And so uh, we're going to make a habit out of this. Right. I love it. Yeah, definitely. And so I want to thank you all very much for taking time to uh, to be on my to be on my podcast. And um, yeah, we did a show. Thank you all so much. This is going to be very helpful to a lot of people. Again, Nina Jenkins, a disinformation fellow at the Wilson 
Center and Shireen Mitchell, the founder of Stop Online Violence Against Women, and Maria Romanenko, who is a special correspondent at Kromansky International. Uh, thank you all very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.